All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views, and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. This isn't so much a choice that we have to direct value and somewhat like play God with the value flows in the industry, but rather if they do not receive this value back, they will never be profitable. They will never be sustainable. And we will default back to an extremely centralized set of actors that offer uh, price discovery through an opaque RFQ system. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll take you right over to the homepage and use Bell20 for 20% off. I will see you in sunny London town in March. This episode is brought to you by Maverick Protocol, a suite of liquidity tools built around an innovative AMM. Maverick helps token projects, DAO treasuries, LPs, or basically anyone in DeFi shape their liquidity with efficiency and flexibility. How, you might ask? Stick around and you're going to be hearing about them more later. Now, on with the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Very pumped for this episode today. Dan and I are going to be interviewing Anna from CowSwap and Ludwig from Sorella Labs. We're going to be talking about batch auctions as a mechanism, which is obviously part of a, a build-on from the last episode where we described the whole family of order flow auctions. We zero in on batch auctions in this episode and explore how they can mitigate some of that MEB leakage that we've been talking about this entire season. Really pumped for this one. There were a lot of gems, so hope you all enjoy. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. I am joined uh, by my co-host, uh, Dan Robinson. Uh, and today we've got Anna of CowSwap and Ludwig from Sorella Labs. Team, welcome to the welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be uh, a ton of fun. Um, so I, I before we sort of get into this episode where we're going to be talking about uh, batch auctions and sort of... Uh, relegating MEV from the base layer protocol to applications, which I know both of you have a lot, a lot of thoughts about. Can you just kind of give us a quick 30-second uh, intro to yourself and the protocols that you're working on? Hey, I'm Ludwig, so working at Sorella Labs. Uh, we're building Angstrom. It's our kind of response to the problem of um, LVR, uh, loss versus rebalancing, the fact that LPs are not really sustainable today. So we're trying to make them positive in expectation. Cool. And I'm Anna and um, I joined the blockchain space in 2017. Back then I joined Gnosis. So as part of Gnosis, I early on started already looking into DEX designs and specifically into batch auctions. And then after working on a few different DEX designs that were only semi-successful, we finally landed on what is now CowSwap. And yeah, CowSwap is a decentralized exchange that's based on frequent batch auctions. Um, it's an intent-based system. We launched in May 2021, so I believe we were one of the earliest applications that applied intents in such a wide range. And um, on CowSwap's, yeah, user sign transactions, where um, they give price of the or like design the relevant information, information such as the buy token, the sell token the expiration time and the limit price. And um, then the orders gets collected in an order book. 
and is then picked up by a competition of decentralized parties that we refer to as the servers, and they compete for the order flow by maximizing the value that is given back to the users. That, yeah, basically, in short, is what Carsoft is doing. That's uh, that's super helpful. And I think where we want to spend the bulk of our time for, for this interview is actually talking about uh, solving MEV at the application layer. And uh, and I, I know one of the themes that Dan and, I, Dan and I have been uh, poking at this entire season is sort of this win-win situation for both swappers and LPs that we can solve by uh, mitigating or stemming some of the MEV that leaks out from the application. So even just talking about designing uh, MEV-aware sort of mechanisms and preventing that leakage is, I think, where we want to spend a lot of time. But uh, just for listeners, the, the last episode that, that Dan and I did was on uh, order flow auctions and that whole design space. And batch, batch auctions are obviously a part of that part of that family. So before we get uh, too far into the weeds, could one of you, uh, maybe Anna, could I just pick on you? Could you just describe, describe what a, uh, an FBA is and maybe some of the uh, primitives that come along with it? For sure. And uh, maybe I can even give a bit of a broader context that might be interesting. And if I get too long, just interrupt me. That's great. Um, <laughs> so frequent batch auctions is essentially a concept that has already been studied within TradeFi for quite some time. And um, it's essentially offering a solution that um, is providing a um, solution yeah, to a problem that exists in one of the more widely known and adopted financial markets um, that are using continuous limit order books. And the issue behind limit order books is that they treat time as continuous. So in other words, there's usually a serial processing of orders. And this allows, in a way, riskless arbitrage profits, even in an environment where information is symmetric. So even if everyone has exactly the same information, by ordering them sequentially, you have the, the incentive to be faster than everyone else in order to extract value. And to illustrate this better, there's this famous example of how at one point um, there was a cable built between the uh, Chicago Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange just in order to get information milliseconds faster. So not even like the blink of an eye significantly faster. And why was this built, even though it cost millions of dollars, is because it was worthwhile, because having access to the information just a little bit faster enabled one party to do front running, like basically having this information faster and then take profit from this by front running other traders. And these are basically riskless arbitrage profits, and they are not supposed to exist in a well-functioning market. They harm liquidity and also they include um, never-ending arms race for, for speed. And um, a market design solution to this problem is essentially if um, the, the batch auctions, it's if you put time into units or discrete time and um, basically process requests to trade in a batch by using those auctions. And... Um, this would have two benefits, right? One is that you have discrete time, which reduces the economic relevance of these tiny speed advantages that you have. And then secondly, it also, um, by, by applying this auction, it changes the nature of the, of the competition because now instead of competing against speed, you are now competing for price. And um, so this is essentially like the problem that was existing in TradeFall or is existing in TradeFall, which is, known as high-frequency trading, HFT. And I think a very similar problem exists on blockchain today with MEV. 
And um, I would argue that the problem on blockchain is even magnitudes higher because since you have the public mempool, where all transactions basically linger for up to 15 seconds until the next block is validated, um, you have advanced players that can now take advantage of like normal retail players. And uh, most people, obviously, who listen to this are very familiar with MAV. So um, by reordering the transactions and by simply paying higher gas to front run transactions, one can essentially um, extract significant financial gains. And I would say for like, there's many cases where a single front running or sandwiching attack uh, gains profits of a few thousand dollars. And um, on Ethereum, and this is where I think the argument gets very interesting, is on Ethereum, you already do not have continuous time, right? You have block time. So every 12 to 15 seconds, a new block is validated. So why would you apply this continuous time model in a non-continuous environment? And um, therefore, to me, it seems like very straightforward or intuitive that you would basically apply batch auctions to blockchain. Um, which mitigates these negative externalities of MEV. So essentially, um, I'm sure we dive a little bit deeper into this later, but um, MEV arises because if you have this sequential execution of transactions, right? You have like um, different prices for one asset and one block, and then they are arbitrarily ordered or like someone else is purposefully ordering them in a specific way to maximally extract slippage. And in a batch auction, essentially what you do, you batch all those different assets, like all the assets, you ensure that they have, that are cleared with one single unique clearing price. And by doing this, you have not the slippage tolerance anymore that you can extract based on reordering the transactions in a certain way. Um, and yeah, if you look into this data specifically, I think there's like many blocks where we have seen that a single asset, such as something highly liquid as USDC had already a price spread of uh, USDC ESPAIR had a price spread of 1% in a single block. And that's of course not very efficient. And so batch auctions remove this, this inefficiency. Thanks, Anna. Um, yeah, I think that, that's a great description of batch auctions. I, I'm, I think a lot of us are also a fan of that, um, of the British paper on batch auctions uh, that I think you're referring to there and, and uh, continuous versus discrete time. Um, one thing we've talked about on this show is the difference between MEV um, and DEX-MEV. Uh, so one is emitted by swappers with transactions in the mempool, and that can be captured as slippage or, or by sandwich attacks by, by someone. And I can see how a batch auction, an off-chain batch auction like CowSwap can can prevent that or mitigate that by executing all trades in a batch at the at the same price. And so you actually you can't sandwich somebody. You, you basically have to trade at the same price as them. What about the other kind of MEV that's emitted by by passive liquidity providers on chain? And that's that's often referred to as, as lever. So thinking about, I guess, for example, liquidations. Um, what is it, how does a liquidation occur? Like maybe somebody sees that um, the price arc is changing and wants to like directly background this transaction um, and then take advantage of it. And if you look at very of, like some of the popular liquidation protocols such as Aave, Compound, DYDX, um, they usually um, come with a fixed discount. Um, so essentially let's say that um, at a 5% discount, um, your collateral is being sold and now if you would plug this into a batch auction the order flow um before it gets publicly liquidated you would say okay immediately 
once um, the price point is hit, like basically you are under collateralized immediately, um, the volume is being sold by a, a batch auction, then you, without providing this 5% price discount, you could save within the first X amount of minutes, maybe you give access to a private order flow for auction that is maximizing for giving users the value rather than just saying, oh, the cut is taken per default at 5%. I was initially more so thinking about the problem of uh, stat arb and specifically sex decks. Um, so it's the idea that there's some exogenous uh, price discovery mechanism that is uh, quicker um, and that has deeper books where the bulk of the volume actually occurs. And here I'm specifically referring to Binance, um, where in effect, compared to the MEV that originates from users where some user doesn't um, communicate a strict slippage tolerance and then there's some direct ordering and extraction through like a sandwich attack. What you actually have as a, as a worse problem is the extraction of the stale quotes of LPs. And it really occurs, and you can think about it fundamentally, from the principle of the LPs lacking that information and lacking the ability to um, change their stale quotes. So Binance will have a price change and um, the LPs don't have time to react. And given this, they're sophisticated actors, specifically vertically, vertically integrated builders that are going to see that these uh, LPs are offering the wrong price and are going to bid up in the uh, block auction to be able to be the first to touch the pool, the first to effectively extract that value from those LPs and buy at this wrong price and then execute the second leg of the arbitrage on the off-chain venue. So how would you mitigate that? How do you avoid that value being captured by, by proposers? Well, I think fundamentally speaking, this value is already being recaptured very efficiently today. It's just not by LPs. We're effectively paying the wrong party. And what I mean by this is that if we look at the um, proposer builder separation infrastructure today, um, you have a builder uh, that effectively bids in the block auction to the proposer. And in a competitive builder setting, uh, they're bidding most of that value back to the proposer. If we're able to shift this and, and remove that proposer's uh, monopolistic ability to decide who gets to execute the arbitrage, you can then have an auction that you run specifically to pay the LP the most to get the right to execute that arbitrage. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are effectively incurring this loss. They're the ones that are suffering that, that economic loss. So this, at least what, what we're um, kind of building with Angstrom is this idea of bringing back this auction and effectively directing the value of the auction directly to the party that is losing the money, directly to the LP. So how you do this, um, simply put, is that you run a very similar auction to the uh, block auction, but instead it is purely for the right to execute the arbitrage against the LP. And so the LP gets the bulk of that LVR back. Yeah, I, I think that's a. I I, I want to dig into the the construction that you have on that on on Angstrom Ludwig because I think it's really interesting. But I do want to. I think it's an important point to underscore for the audience because when people t tend to talk about MEV, they talk about it as almost uh, springing from Ethereum because uh, that's where the most uh, the largest and sort of robust most robust ecosystem for for MEV exists today. But I think you could make the argument that a lot of MEV actually originates from the applications themselves. Um, and based on the mechanism design of those applications. So I, I would be curious, like maybe just an open question uh, 
to the both of you before we get into the weeds a bit. You know, how do you think about from a high level designing mechanisms that are MEV aware, uh, right? With the with the ultimate goal being to redirect that MEV that's getting extracted mostly by proposers at the at the block the block space auction today, and redirecting that back to LPs. Kind of a high level question, but like how do you think about when you're designing these mechanisms about keeping MEV in mind? Generally speaking, I'd say you have to be cognizant that at any point in time, your application might provide a state where it is purely profitable to execute on it because of some exogenous um, kind of movement. May that be in price or in some information that your application does not have. Because smart contracts, they're not that smart, really. They exist in isolation on the blockchain. So without providing them information, they will just follow the uh, rule set that is effectively written in a smart contract. So how I think about it is, A, being able to provide that information through some mechanism, and B, removing the proposer's control over that application, removing the builder's and proposer's ability to extract value without that application effectively signing off on it. Because if you have some very smart mechanism, but at the end of the day, the proposer can sequence a transaction that executes against your state and extracts that value, you're going to have to pay them to effectively do it in a way that um, kind of recaptures that value. And that rent is being paid, but that is an unnecessary rent to pay. So the most important thing that I'd say is you have to design the application whereby you are cognizant of the fact that some MEV opportunity is going to be created. But when it is created, the application itself has to effectively give the right to someone. You have to be in control of who actually gets to extract that value. Yeah, and I think Ludwig touched on a very important point, which is like as soon as you basically have some form of MEV um, surface, usually in the current design space, most of the times it's just being totally like at the advantage of a validator, right? Like ultimately you follow the MEV chain and most of it ends up going for the to the validator. And um, so from that perspective, I mean, I agree Like it's really difficult to design in a way that no MEV is exposed in the first place. And you can argue that even in a batch auction, to some extent, like there's value that solvers are like dealing around with. But then I think that it becomes important that the way you design the competition is in the way that like the, the, the way you set up the rules of the competition, in my view, should be set up such that they benefit the user and of course this is a philosophical question and not everybody might have the same opinion on this of like where should the value of MEV actually go to but me personally and and working for CalSub it's very clear that my opinion is um a I think it is creating inefficiencies the more MEV you're exposing because ultimately if you expose it you need to somehow redistribute it and that also means that you are giving up block space, right? At least you need to incorporate an additional transaction of where this MEV is later on given to. So it is making the market less efficient. And then secondly, from a more like philosophical standpoint, I would argue that if the user is creating the MEV opportunity in the first place by, have, by being basically vulnerable to external people extracting value from them, then my view is that that MEV actually belongs to them because they exposed it in the first place and it's taken away from them. And by creating a market framework where you say, okay, maybe there is some exposure possible um, to create the rules of the competition in a way where you say, okay, only those people gain the order flow who actually 
give the value back to where it belongs, and I would argue to the user, I win in the competition. This is a way of how you can design an application in a way that yeah is more user-friendly. Yeah, I, I'd so, somewhat add on to the, the idea that it's a philosophical question. I think it's a more so an existential question for blockchain in the sense that this value from MEV is most of the time extractive. Uh, someone is losing. And we see this with LPs today. This isn't so much a choice that we have to direct value and somewhat like play God with the value flows in the industry, but rather if they do not receive this value back, they will never be profitable. They will never be sustainable. And we will default back to an extremely centralized set of actors that offer uh, price discovery through an opaque RFQ system. And I don't think that's a desirable thing. We have to make the decentralized applications sustainable by redistributing that underlying value, because otherwise the participants that are providing liquidity, that are providing this extremely necessary service will like cease to provide liquidity because they just won't have any capital left because they're going to be continuously arbitraged and continuously at a loss. Luke, you, you mentioned some of the professional participants in the, in the system, I think in, um, and, and as well as the centralized parties that might actually take it over if other, if other, uh, if we don't design better mechanisms. Um, there are a lot of these kind of professionalized participants in, in Ethereum today. Um, in, I know in CowSwap has solvers and some of Angstrom's design, there are, there's a role for professional market makers there. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I want to share something that Blockworks has been cooking up for these last couple of months. March of this coming year in London, Blockworks is hosting DAS London, the largest institutionally focused conference in all of crypto. We are gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers. So think TradFi macro funds, crypto native funds, big allocators, and financial institutions. So banks, payment products processors, etc. All in one spot. It's very rare to get the likes of Goldman, JP Morgan, Point72, whatever, all in one room so you can know what the big money is doing. We're diving into the themes that they care about. So we're talking about the intersection of macro and crypto, where we are in the cycle, real world assets. So everything from stable coins to on-chain treasuries to tokenized assets. It's going to be a blast. But the other reason you really want to go is London, baby. Center of the world at one point. You got pub culture, you got fish and chips, great beer. It's going to be a blast. So because you're such great listeners to Bell Curve, there's a code bell 20 that's going to get you 20 percent off so click the link at the bottom of this episode it'll take you right over to the homepage. you'll see all of our speakers and use bell 20 for 20 percent off ticket prices are going up soon make sure you go use that code i will see you in sunny london town in march i'm curious i guess anna um how do you see the role of the solvers in uh in CowSwap? um and who, who are those those solvers and what what powers do they have who are the solvers? Um, I think it's actually in a variety um, of different actors. Um, we do have a few individuals who initially, I think, just um, nerd sniped to getting into the competition. Then um, after time, I think our competition got a bit more sophisticated by more market makers entering the competition, um, who, of course, um, by adding their own private liquidity, have a structural advantage. Um, and then we also have protocols um, such as Yearn, who essentially just want to facilitate specific use cases that are maybe not in the interest of the broad variety of servers because those trades happen not frequently enough and are not providing enough profit opportunities. But as the um, for protocol specifically interested to interesting to be 
um, executed on. It's interesting because, of course, um, we the, I think all protocols that have these external, whether they're called solvers, fillers, or resolvers, are dependent on them because you ultimately want to ensure that you provide a good experience to your users, meaning that there is competition. The less competition there is, the more risky it is that actually at one point um, there is no profitable execution or no, no good execution for the user. The risk is somewhat limited because, of course, the user signs their order with the limit price. So the limit price is guaranteed per smart contract guarantee. Um, but the slippage tolerance is something that could theoretically be at risk if, let's say, there is suddenly no solver competition, only one solver executes. There has, they have no incentive to provide a better price than anyone else because they're only the only one competing on this. And then theoretically, they would be able to extract the slippage. So from that perspective, I think all protocols that are working on this decentralized competition um, yeah, really require a good set of actors that are competing with each other. But I think in a way, you can even compare that to block builders and search environment, but essentially you, in a similar way, are relying on a strong decentralized competition. So uh, maybe just to double down on this question a little bit, because I feel like one of the the common components of these more Amoeba-aware designs is you're relying on this sort of third-party network of everyone's got a different name, right? If it's solvers or fillers or searchers or whatever, and I feel like maybe intentionally or not, the sort of, even when I went into doing our MEV season and this season, the sort of ideas that searchers are these little like at-home, one-person shops, you know, writing code and stuff like that. And I feel like more and more that is not the case. And it's a smaller group of entities that you might think that are now what people refer to as like integrated searcher builders, which are basically hedge funds. And my sort of understanding, if I had to really guess at it, would be that mo it's mostly the same entities that are either fillers on Uniswap X or, or solvers on CowSwap or, or whatever. Like, can you, can you like any, any granularity that you can give for listeners about like how similar are these entities across all of these different platforms? Is it mostly these sort of hedge fund entities? And then how do you see the future of that market shaping out? Because if this is the direction that we're going in terms of app design, I feel like it's important to have a, a competitive market. You know, I don't know if it needs to be thousands of independent searchers, but like, how do you see the future of this sort of uh, market of sophisticated entities? In terms of the people that I've seen on the solver side, on the builder side, and on the searcher side, um, solvers are as Anna mentioned, quite a diverse group of people, at least they were in the beginning. You have these small teams from these very random backgrounds that were working in the beginning, and a lot of them are now no longer able to operate. And so now you only really just have the best of that initial diverse group, and then the hedge funds that kind of opted in. Um, but realistically, it all converges towards StatArp. It all converges towards uh, market makers that are just more efficient. And so I, I think I'm somewhat frustrated it, this idea that we have all of these different roles, like as you kind of mentioned, they're all converging towards the same person because a builder um, is a better solver. And a builder is also a better provider of liquidity on any um, underlying liquidity source to arbitrage and AMM. So they're also a better searcher. Um, and if we don't design applications where there's also this sense of we can operate kind of collaboratively, there is... Um, some force in us all optimizing for a problem and not having a single winner that, that takes all, you're always going to have that. And so without um, kind of 
applications that design that um, with that in mind, the competition will die down to like a select few um, hedge funds and entities that are running like, very sophisticated builder infrastructure and are able to build on like block N on latest state because they're aware of the block template. So they're cognizant of all of the state. And so even for like a simple routing uh, problem for a solver, for example, they're better equipped. So should we try to prevent this from happening or, or should we just lean into it or embrace it? We should aim to maintain uh, extremely permissionless uh, competition. So anybody that wants to opt into the market can operate. Um, in terms of limiting that like, somewhat force of centralization, it's extremely difficult because these, uh, these entities have uh, economics of scale. They have greater efficiency. Um, so it's very hard to design applications with, with that in mind, especially when you have privacy that enters because then there's an advantage for private order flow. So I think we should push against it, um, but we should do so not with, not by like forcing it and introducing unnecessary efficiency, but just simply coming up with better uh, application design where that privacy and that like, inherent hyper-competitiveness where you have a winner-takes-all isn't, isn't like an existential property of the system. If you can have some winner of a very sophisticated actor, but still have others that contribute to the solution and that are effectively pushing the solution to a more efficient end result, I see that as like a, a positive outcome. Literally, I want to get back to uh, what we were talking about before about the two different kinds of MEV um, and decentralized exchange or the dominant kinds. Uh, one that's suffered by traders uh, by having their, their trade sandwiched or, or suffering slippage and one that's suffered by passive liquidity providers. So um, my understanding, Angstrom uh, tries to solve this problem by separating the auction into, into two pieces. Um, do you want to talk about how that works and get more into the details of how Angstrom solves this? Yeah, absolutely. So Angstrom at its core is looking at the current kind of supply chain and saying, well, we've already found like a really efficient way of recapturing this value. So let's re-implement that at the LP level. And how you do this is you have to, A, remove um, kind of random execution on state where anyone can execute. You have to gate it. And we do so by gating it behind uh, effectively a verification of consensus. So you have um, this network that is dedicated to our application, that, which we call the guard network, which is run uh, and can be run by anyone that effectively provides stake. And you're effectively peering around all of these transaction and orders and then structuring them within a bundle, within this single transaction that the proposer or the builder can't effectively break up. And so you're removing their power to sequence and order transactions. And you can break up the bundle into two components, the top of bundle, uh, where the underlying arbitrage is executed and like the rest of the bundle where user orders are effectively batched at a uniform um, clearing price. And how that works and why this is actually useful is that the top of bundle is the arbitrageur that is incentivized to effectively arbitrage back to true price. But they're competing against all of these other searchers to effectively bid and, and provide the biggest uh, kind of kickback to the LP. So only the um, searcher that effectively contributes the most value back to the underlying LP gets to execute that arbitrage. After this, for the rest of the bundle, you have uh, a frequent batch auction that provides this uniform uh, point of clearing price. And how you arrive to that is you look at all of the user orders and conceive of them as limit orders. And you can construct and find the point of intersection between the supply and the demand. So the supply as in uh, the asks, so sell orders, and uh, the demand is in the buys. And as you find that point, 
you can effectively arrive to that single fair price. But you add in the constraint whereby LPs are effectively only providing liquidity at that final price. And what that means is that they're no longer offering that stale quote because all of these market makers and user orders are effectively providing that information whereby the LP is now cognizant of the fair price where users are users and market makers are willing to trade at, and they only offer liquidity at that point. Now, uh, so, so both Angstrom and uh, the for Angstrom and CowSwap have batch auctions in them and batch auctions limit in some ways what you can do with an individual trade. I'm, I'm curious, Anna, how CowSwap thinks about the composability and whether um, forcing, pushing users into this, into this batch auction model limits what they're able to do with their with their um, assets on trade on, 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 on chain or whether you have, whether you have new solutions to, to get around that. Do you have an example in what way it limits that? Because for example, CowSwap also um, launched pre and post order interaction, right? That we refer to as CowHope, which also makes it now very composable in the sense that you're now able to come up with any pre order interaction, pre swap and any post swap that you want to do, whether it's like, um, dissolve my um, my whatever maker CDP. Now I want to swap it and uh, tap into Arbor, for example. Like all those things, or I want to swap and then trade cross chain. Like all those are possible. I don't know if that's what you were hinting. Yeah, at. Yeah, that, that's that's that's. I'm asking about. I think about programmatic orders, or or is that is that that's what you refer to? So how how does that work? Um, so it's two separate things. Um, one is essentially just allowing that you add any type of um, on-chain interaction before and after normal swap. This is what we refer to as cow hooks. And then with programmatic orders, this is actually something that we literally just went live with this week. And it's actually pretty cool. It's um, take, it's leveraging ESC 1271. So it's now allowing um, any smart contract based system to essentially place any type of programmable order in the future. Um, this can be used to generate multiple discrete orders, um, basically endless, even if you want to create 100 different TWAP orders, for example, you can do it with a single signature. Um, if you want to update those by, for example, saying I want to change the date, I don't want this to be executed every day, but instead every week, or I want to change the slippage, you can adjust this for all 100 orders within a single signature. And um, yeah, you can assess a proposed uh, order against a set of different conditions. So you can really come up with anything. You can come up with stop loss, with DCA orders, or to come back to the, to the topic of today of essentially like the issue of liquidations. Think about um, you have um, your assets uh, wherever and then you want to protect it because you, you're... Um, getting close to being liquidated um, and you're thinking, okay, I actually don't want to continuously monitor, monitor my position, but instead I want to automatize an order that says, um, once I am closely to be liquidated, I actually want to buy more of my backed assets in order to secure my position. You can automatize this entirely with cows of today, or you can even think the opposite. If for example, um, you have your backing in ether, Ether is uh, uh, increasing in price as it is right now. So essentially, you would be able to loan more against the ETH that you have already deposited. You can automatize this and automatically via CowSwap, um, yeah, take, take more loans out automatically without individually having to monitor your portfolio. 
I've got a question. How long does it take about just time-wise to run a, like a batch auction for either CowSwap or Angstrom? Um, for us, we, so we do it every block, but there are optimizations that can be done in terms of gas efficiency, because for us, like we're able effectively to compress down all like user interactions within Uniswap to a single actual Uniswap trade, which makes it far more efficient. So if there are very few orders, you can effectively prolong the, the duration of the auction to collect more and then gain that gas efficiency. But in times of effectively like high uh, swap count, like high volatility, you can have one every block. Hmm. For us, it's also 12 seconds, but with the caveat that we are not yet synchronized to block time. Um, instead, we start an auction whenever an order comes in. But this is something that we probably want to work on beginning of next year, that we have sync time with block time. So we have one batch per auction. That, that's super helpful. I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is here, um, I'm trying to understand if there's a different swapper, like the profile of a swapper for, a, for an FBA, like a CalSwap or an Angstrom is different than Uniswap per se. Um, like for instance, I would, I would guess, especially like during the depths of the bear market, when there's not a lot of organic on-chain trading activity, there's a good amount of like sex decks arbs, uh, that are making up the majority of like certain uni pools. Um, I, is it as effective, uh, to do that through, uh, an FBA type mechanism? Like I would guess it's more organic order flow that's moving through there, right? Yeah. I, also for us, we basically never compare Uniswap, we one, two, three, um volume with with our volume but we only look um specifically at dex aggregator volume in comparison because all this arbitrage volume you would never have on a batch auction right not even on a dex aggregator and um so i think yeah it's and i mean there's the numbers vary but i think people, there's like estimates that um arbitrage volume on uniswap is between 50 to even 80 percent or so yeah it's from the last estimates that I saw is, is about 80%. For us, uh, so we still have the arbitrage volume for the sex decks because it, it, it definitely provides this gain in efficiency, especially in a competitive setting, right? You have the best of the best that are competing to provide what is effectively the best Oracle on price because their PNL is dependent on it. Um, so we still have that uh, portion of volume that is going to occur once we launch, um, but we don't have the sandwich volume. Because by construction, you can't sandwich um, a batch where you have a uniform clearing price. Hey everyone, wanted to take a quick second to shout out this season's partner, Maverick Protocol. Now, many of you probably know Maverick as an innovative AMM, which they are, but in reality, they're a lot more than that as well. Maverick is a suite of tools for DeFi users and builders that allows them to put liquidity where it will get the most work done. Since Maverick launched in March, they have been gobbling up market share and at the time of this recording, which is the end of September, on a trailing seven-day volume basis, Maverick is now a top three DEX by volume, and they support over 50% of the volume on the L2 ZK Sync era chain. Maverick enables LPs and token pairs to process higher volume with limited TVL, which allows them to support some of the highest levels of capital efficiency for LSTs like Rapsteef. Another very cool feature is something called Maverick Boosted Positions. So that allows protocols looking to bootstrap their token liquidity to target the shape of liquidity of any token pair with surgical precision. Maverick is backed by some of the leading institutions in crypto, Founders Fund, Pantera, Coinbase Ventures, Finance Lab. They are all backing Maverick in their vision to revolutionize the next generation of DeFi dApps and helping them build their liquidity in all market conditions. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Let them know that I sent you. Thanks, guys.
One thing we've talked about a lot of the show is whether there's a role in the long term for passive on-chain liquidity providers like have been provided by AMMs. Um, Anna, do you, do you think in the long run we will have a lot of passive on-chain liquidity? Um, I think it might change in the sense that um, I think for the very liquid token pairs, USDC, um, ETH, wrap Bitcoin, um, essentially you have a lot of very efficient market maker liquidity. Um, then And then, okay, maybe you have like some very efficient models on curve for stable coins. But I would assume that for long tail tokens, you will always require on-chain liquidity. Like I can, like market makers typically have a portfolio of maybe the top um, 20 assets. And then even in a fragment, like even if you look at a batch auction model that is able to do ring trading, such as Cowswap is able to do it in order to like really leverage um, uh, multi-dimensional order book liquidity, you still will always have like certain assets that will be hanging around in an order book if there's no on-chain liquidity for quite some time. And I think what will probably disappear is maybe AMMs that we know from today because we know that LP provisioning is not uh, capital efficient and it's not profitable in most cases. But I do think we might come up with designs, with AMM designs that become more um, promising and more profitable for liquidity providers. And um, for example, Cowsop, this is just like a side project that we did a little bit of research on. So it's not really our main focus. But um, we looked into cow AMMs and this is essentially um, looking at the opportunity um, of AMMs where essentially you would only solve um, trades and batches and at a uniform clearing price. So essentially you would collect orders, a multiple of orders and see if rather than sequentially being traded, if they are all traded, what would be the final price date of the AMM? And that state is the one that is being given to all orders in this batch. And we looked at it mathematically, we calculated it, and this is why um, this is actually more profitable for IP providers, even if you remove then the entire protocol fees, because obviously you also need to set some sort of incentive why you would be trading against such an AMM. And for liquidity providers, this is, yeah, this would be a more profitable way. And of course, if, if they could choose against like providing liquidity on a normal AMM versus on a cow AMM, it, uh, yeah, if, if they go purely by, if, if you forget about all the other factors such as popularity, knowing Uniswap more, um, being first mover advantage and so on. If you ignore all those factors and just look at it from pure economic profitability, um, there would be a logic move for LP providers to, to, to shift their liquidity over. I'd say that they're, they're going to be able to do that very soon. Um, and on Uniswap because we're building on Uniswap before, but effectively like the design that you've kind of uh, described there is very similar to what we're building. Um, but I think we found that there is an improvement to be made on that design, which we implemented, um, which is to say that that design by definition is leaving money on the table. Um, and why I say this is because in the uh, effectively function maximizing AMM in the AMM where we have these batches and everyone is trading at the same price, what occurs is you, at least theoretically, are converging towards true price because as someone makes a trade, they are pushing the price naturally. And then that is the new 
um, effective price of the AMM and some sophisticated actor might realize, oh, well, there's still money to be taken from that. And they'll again push and then they'll progressively converge towards that true price. But where we kind of flipped that design is that process is inefficient in terms of arriving to that price because at the very end, there is some delta that will always occur due to transactional uh, fees. So gas and then just swap fees. And you're necessarily going to lose that. Um, so where we kind of change that model is instead have an initial party that is responsible for arbitraging back to that like effective true price. And if that effective true price is incorrect, let's have the rest of the bundle um, through market maker limit orders and user orders contribute to bringing that back to the effective price without having that additional cost. Um, but in terms of uh, kind of liquidity provision and, and passive liquidity, going back to your question, um, I think that passive liquidity will still exist, but not as we know it and understand it today. All of the solutions that have kind of been designed for providing efficient liquidity on chain in a decentralized sense, thinking of Iraqis and, and various other um, LP management uh, protocols, are plagued by this problem of LVR. They're plagued by this, uh, the, the fact of life that they're continuously getting arbitrage. Like this is the problem that we initially worked on and why we kind of shifted towards Angstrom is because we realized that regardless of our knowledge and cognizant of toxic flow, regardless of how much information we have on price, if we know that an arbitrage is going to occur, we cannot bid the value in the block auction to the builder for them to actually shift and re execute our transaction that rebalances our position. Because to do that, we have to outcompete the arbitrageur. And the arbitrageur is paying the builder from their profits and their profits equate to the LP's loss. So in effect, what you actually result to is as an LP, you'd have to bid just as much as you would have lost. And doing so is, is strictly unprofitable. So, or you can like, effectively do a lot of work and do your best to be cognizant of toxic flow and move right before, but still have to pay that loss because otherwise the builder doesn't pick you or you just don't do anything and you effectively get arbitraged. So what we kind of realize is that if you remove that loss, there is quite a bit of incentive to provide liquidity in a very efficient automated way. And so passive LPs, as we know them, will probably go through these third-party services in like, hopefully a decentralized applications and be able to provide their liquidity and have it managed for them. And then it'll be very efficient. So long as you remove that inherent loss that occurs every time there's some toxic flow. I've got a, I've got a sort of follow-up question for you here, uh, Ludwig, and I actually just wanted to maybe change tack for a second. So I think we, we might not have made clear here that Angstrom actually is going to be a hook on Uniswap v4. So I would actually love to get your your thoughts here on what was the what was behind the decision to launch as a hook on Uni v4 as opposed to launching your own standalone DEX. Yeah. Um, so for us, uh, building an AMM and implementing that smart contract, not very easy, right? It's already significantly difficult. Um, it takes a lot of work and you have to audit it and which is extremely expensive. And these AMMs are holding a lot of capital. Um, and then there's more so the network effect that Uniswap has, the sheer like, dominance in terms of people's habits of, of trading. When I want to trade on chain and I think, oh, where am I going to trade? Often I'll just intuitively think, okay, let's go to Uniswap. They've like effect, they've spent a lot of resources in the marketing um, end of the game to push that image. And I think that they've somewhat won 
on that on that end. So for us to say, okay, let's build this entire new design, let's have a more efficient system, and on top of that, let's um, compete at the marketing level, just seems like an inefficient uh, way of going to market. And I think that that is why so many hooks are very happy to tap into the Uniswap network effects, because LPs clearly trust Uniswap. They trust the smart contracts. They trust the quality of the code. So if you're able to innovate in finding like a more efficient way of clearing trades and a more efficient way of providing value to LPs, and you base yourself on like the base uh, Uniswap smart contract, you can still be just as profitable. You don't have to leak value to Uniswap itself, but at the same time, you don't have to spend so much time working on all of those other things that seem quite difficult and very expensive. Okay, one one uh, qual or follow up question to you on that. Um, so basically, to to summarize here, the advantage is sort of there's the Uniswap brand, and you already you have a bunch of flow, right? So trading flow that's coming maybe through the Uniswap front end or or wherever. Um, so is that am I basically summarizing that correctly? That that's sort of the the advantage, and then I guess my I, sort of a technical question actually to both you and Dan maybe is how does the how does the routing sort of work there? Like what's the what's the decision? that the Uniswap front end or whatever makes in order to route to, let's say, Ludwig's hook as opposed to, you know, other hook X, Y, Z. Um, and then Ludwig, do you think about your competition as other hooks? Sorry, I've got a lot of questions for you on this, <laughs> obviously. I'm just curious how it all works. In terms of routing, uh, that's kind of an unsolved problem at the moment. And Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but hooks add a fair bit of complexity in routing. And so I think that's where the shift in Uniswap X compared to an on-chain router makes a lot of sense. Um, so you kind of depend on that filler role um, to find the most uh, efficient path to a, a given trade. Um, so most of that, I think, is going to be pushed off-chain. And this idea of on-chain routing being efficient, I think, is somewhat of an idea of the past because you're operating on state N-1. You're operating on the, the previous uh, state. And as the block is then created, there's a ton of orders that might hit that state and then you kind of do not have the route that you would have hoped for um in terms of competition generally i see like competitions other hooks um other people that are at the base layer trying to find more efficient design and better ways of making lp sustainable anna wh why uh why not build uh cow amm as a uniswap v4 hook can we convince you to do that um, it's just not really our focus, right? We were just thinking about how can we make AMMs more efficient? Um, could be an idea to play around with, but yeah, definitely. I, I think we will stand away from building cow AMMs as a standalone project because just competing with Uniswap on liquidity would probably be a nightmare. It would be very difficult. I guess just to get the the other side of the coin here, is there, is there any downside to to building on a hook? I, obviously, the the upside is is huge there, but uh, not to put you on the spot there, Ludwig. But do you see any any negatives for the <laughs> negative trade offs with the hook? There's the obvious concern that you're less gas efficient because at a technical level, you're operating within the design of Uniswap before, and you could be operating with a design that is applied to you, right? Um, we aren't bothered at all by that because, as I mentioned, like we're going to arrive to swaps that are like substantially cheaper than Uniswap like, V4 itself because of our batching, because of our ability to compute everything off chain and then compress everything down. Um, so if you're operating just a, a standalone hook and doing all that logic on chain, it can get a bit more expensive, but I don't see it as that, like that big of a problem, honestly. There are also some, just to, to be pedantic, there are also some gas efficiency benefits of V4, right? When you have multi-hop 
trades on, on Uniswap before because of the singleton design, it's actually cheaper. Some, some of the costs end up actually getting amortized across multi, the multi, uh, the multi hop swap. So there's some benefits, particularly if you're, if you're anticipating it being armed against other, other Uniswap before pools. I'd, I'd say so. Like, yes, there's some benefits, but I think that yeah, I think ar architecturally it doesn't pose limits that could, that could increase the gas. Absolutely. Yeah. I think those benefits are somewhat marginal compared to the cost of operating purely in their framework. But if you're operating within like the ecosystem of hooks, you're definitely better off just having a hook yourself. All right. So maybe closing question for, for the two of you. So um, one of the, one of the, the questions that we've been asking ourselves this, this whole season is, do you ever see a future where, um, you know, we can move price discovery on chain outside of like the long tail of sort of crypto, crypto native assets for maybe like the majors, like a, a Bitcoin or ETH. Like, look, big, I just heard you say something that was like, ah, that's just not ever really going to happen. So I, I'd be curious, like, do you ever see uh, a world where we can move price discovery off of the, the Binance of the world and onto the DEXs? Or is that kind of a pipe dream? Or And, and if it is possible, like, what are the things that we need to improve to, to get there? There's a there's a big zero to one that has to happen. I don't want to say impossible because being bearish on, on technology in the long run makes you look like an absolute fool. Um, but in the near future, like I don't see it happening because at the end of the day, like looking at Solana, for example, and a lot of people that operate in DeFi on Solana will tell you that they have these super efficient order books and transactions are so cheap and everything's great. And you can effectively uh, have like similar efficiency to centralized um, exchanges. I don't think that's true. And I think it goes back to how transactions actually end up on chain. Um, as soon as you have a builder, let, let, let's apply this theoretical framework where transactions don't cost anything. As soon as you have a builder that has a limited capacity of transactions that they have to kind of post on chain um, and they get to decide what gets included, you can you immediately arrive to the problem where if you have, let's say, a limit order book, which would be necessary for on-chain price discovery, they can censor those transactions. They can choose which transactions get included and which don't. And so if you have a stale quote uh, and a market maker is trying to cancel their limit order, well, the builder naturally is going to say, well, no, that, that transaction looks great to me. I'd love to execute and be your counterparty there. And so if we don't solve that problem, regardless of how cheap the transactions actually are, you are still facing that loss because you don't have the ability to cancel your orders. You don't have the ability to shift your limit orders as quickly and as, as efficiently because there's that rent that has to be paid because another party will be able to extract value and you'd have to pay them more than the value that they'd be able to extract. That's an interesting concern to think about. But in general, I am more bullish i think ultimately that's the end game right that is the goal for us why we work on this is that we do believe that at some point I, and i'm not saying in the next year or the next two years but that ultimately um price discovery is taking place um on blockchain um and that the majority of trading volume is taking place on chain is the goal right this is why we are essentially or this is the future that we are all building towards and um, you see more and more assets being created on chain and you see more central banks looking into building on top of uh, different blockchains. So I, I do think that, um, again, not, in, not like in the next two, three years, but that in the future, I, I, I do believe that price 
discovery will take place. And I'm, I'm sure um, if you think about those problems long enough, we will also come up with solutions for those. I think those, those problems are very hard. Those problems are extremely difficult uh, because you'd have to find a collaborative way to arrive to cancellations. You'd have to find a way to limit the ability of the end proposer and reduce their financial incentive to zero to censor anything, which is an extremely difficult problem that like we're currently very much played with. We first a have to fix scalability and ensure the throughput necessary, which is also very difficult. And then you also enter the other problem, which is decentralization, like creates um, latency between nodes. You have an idea of a mempool or you have private order flow, both create their, their own complexities. Like I'm, I'm not one to say like, this is never going to happen. I, I just think that for a significant amount of time, this will not occur on chain. And we are going to need zero to ones in the fundamental technology that we're building upon to be able to do this, because there is no smart mechanism designed today that will make that possible. I mean, you could probably even think, I, I mean, this is, this is going to go in a very deep discussion, but like, um, think about ways of, if you could apply penalties for if a cancellation has been expressed or if this wish for cancellation has been expressed and the, um, the rule then basically says if the transaction is still being executed, despite that expression, that the party, the executing party is being punished slash in whatever way. I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm sure if you play around enough with game theory, there's like some ways of. Yeah. Like if you do that, you'd have to have full data availability. So those transactions have to be posted somewhere and everyone has to hear them. Everyone has to see them to be able to slash. So to slash a censorship, you need full data availability, because if you don't, nobody knows that that's, that transaction was seen by the ultimate proposer. It doesn't, it, it can just be like, it doesn't necessarily um, have to be full data availability as long as you have some proofs to verify the transaction, right? You could still have privacy and at the same time have uh, incorporate some sort of proof system that would validate whether an order has been cancelled or not. I don't know, it, it's getting complex and I'm not saying that there's a solution right now, but I think like if we think hard enough and long enough about the problem, there might be some ways of circumventing it. No, we'll get there. We'll, we'll definitely get there. But it, it's going to take a lot of work. On that note of optimism, I think we can leave it. Uh, Anna and Ludwig, this has been a, a ton of fun and a really great episode. Uh, if folks want to find out more about you, uh, follow you or the projects that you're working on, what's the best way to do that? Um, for us on CowSwap, basically at CowSwap is our Twitter account and personally, um, Anna MS George, also on Twitter, is the best way. For us, uh, at Sorella Labs on Twitter, we're going to be releasing some really cool MEV data very soon and our docs, so I'm excited about that. Um, and personally, at vanbeethoven.eth on Twitter. Excellent. All right, team, this was a really fun one. Thanks so much for joining. Thank Thanks you, man. Thanks for having us. All right. What a great episode. That was a... Uh... That was a real thinker. A lot of um, lot of eye opening moments for me in that one. That was good. Yeah, yeah, me too. And they got they got pretty deep into it. I think also recognize a lot of the caveats maybe to some of the concerns about about the kind of these kind of solutions. I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. So let me ask you this question that I sort of posed to both Ludwig and Anna, and I'd love to get your response here. So you you could look at MEV as either originating from the sort of the base layer of Ethereum and the design there. And a lot of the MEV mitigation solutions to date have been sort of focused on the ETH layer. They're moving sort of the priority gas auctions off chain in the form of, you know, MEV boost or, or what have you. 
The other lens that you could look at it is through with MEV actually originating at the application layer through the mechanism design of protocols like Uniswap. How do you ultimately view that? Yeah, so I think I think there's certainly some kinds of MEV. Right. So as as for where does MEV originate? I think ultimately everyone designing protocols on top of Ethereum is trying to build it to build their applications or their protocols in a MEV aware way, or they 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 have to just because of what the base layer um, provides. And then, but I think on the flip side, when people are thinking of the base layer, they really should be thinking maybe a lot more. And I think they they have started to think a lot more about what kinds of applications it makes possible and what um, you know what affordances you provide to people who are building applications on top. So I remember a few years ago, nobody who was working on Ethereum, um, you know, before before 20, 20, before twenty twenty, basically, almost nobody who was working on the Ethereum base uh, layer even thought about MEV as a topic. Um, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't really, uh, and I think that when the Flash, uh, Flash Boys 2.0 paper came out by Phil Dion um, uh, and others, I think that kind of made it, oh, this is an interesting academic, you know, concept that you have this. And then, you know, we, we sort of saw the entire, uh, all of Ethereum get flipped on its head when, when Flashbots launched, uh, launched Vevgeth and you realize, oh man, this is actually much more important at the base layer than we'd realized. I think ultimately what we're seeing right now is a consequence of MEV unaware protocol design. And we were all just a lot, all fairly naive, I think, before, <laughs> excuse me, and not really thinking about, about um, how MEV uh, would, would practically arise. Um, we're seeing the consequences of that at the protocol layer, and that's requiring applications to be a lot smarter in how they, des uh, they design MEV aware applications. My hope would be that that's, that fixes that the protocol layer could actually change, um, change some, of the, some of at least the decisions that applications now have to make. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. I, I I do I do wonder like I'm I'm interested now that I feel like MEV has really dominated the the popular discourse to to such a degree that basically everyone's been nerd sniped by it at this point. And I do think this next generation of builders, when they're building their applications, they do have MEV is not just like a small side consideration. You could clearly you know hear both from from Anna and Ludwig like that's at the forefront of their mind. So actually oh, yeah. like. Yeah, Ludwig yeah. is a MEV native builder, basically. I mean, he didn't really get into it, but he, you know, before they had done some um, some work on liquidity providing on on Uniswap, and so they've, they've been research on that, and so he's very aware, I think, of what it's like to be um, to be a liquidity provider and to actually be on the other side of this. And I think generally, like these builders who grew up in a MEV aware environment, just have a different a different perspective on it than for people who, who started with Ethereum, sort of thinking it was like it was just like oh, Bitcoin plus um, plus code. That's super interesting. Not that you can probably comment directly on, you know, sort of paradigm strategy here, but do you feel like there's a there there is a really big difference between some of the younger, more MEV native sort of builders? And like, if so, what is the, what is the biggest difference before between like this gen, sort of the the Ludwig's or the the ones that came before? Well, I think the boomers like me try to try to be as up to date and stay aware. As I say that, it makes me sound even even older and more out of touch. Um, but yeah, I mean, generally working with people like like Frankie, who I think you know, um, yeah, kind of really like lives and breathes this stuff. You start to, and you know, I think I think Phil Phil and Charlie were ahead of the game on it, but sort of have always have always believed this in their bones. Um, you sort of start to. It, it's about really the attitude is about thinking, okay, what's the worst case that could possibly happen? You could hear that talking to both Anna and Ludwig here is when they talk about any solution, they'll go and here's the here's what it could lead to. Here's the here's the ultimate possible equilibrium for it. Um, and I think that's I think it's you know it's important that people actually still actually can do that. Um, and I think it's, you know, 
yeah, that, that's a way in which the world has really changed is that I think we, we start to recognize, okay, what's the end state of this mechanism? What's the actual equilibrium? Rather than this very fragile um, non-equilibrium, I think often that, that uh, things start off in when they, when they initially launch. Yeah. So what, how would you define, like, maybe the, not that the toolkit is the wrong word, but the different set of strategies or how some of these more MEV-aware applications look like today, as opposed to their counterparts from even two or three years ago. You know, one one commonality seems to be, I feel like the cow swap intense model that I feel like they did a pretty good job of leading where they're relying on this off-chain network of uh, builder solvers. But like, what are some of the common core design decisions that you see being replicated across this, this next gen of uh, sort of AMM or DEX designers? Yes. So... A few things. I think intense versus transactions is one where often, and not not every MEV solution. I think Flashbots has done an, an impressive job building MEV around transac- the transaction model. But ultimately, I think intense gives you a lot more flexibility potentially to work with MEV mitigations. And so I think that's uh, that's a tool you see used a lot. Um, I think things that move that are slower than a single block are often used um, mm. for, for for certain kinds of MEV mitigation. You see that with with cow swaps, um, uh, longer batch auctions, and that's. Partly beneficial because you end up, you know, individual blocks have have this uh, have a single proposer right now in Ethereum, and that's that's can be uh, a big constraint for MEV mitigations because you have basically this unlimited power by this individual potentially profit motiv- motivated entity to censor. So uh, protocols that take more than one block to resolve um, is, is one solution. But on the flip side, another kind is protocols that take that find finality in less than one block. So if you look at what most uh, L2 sequencers are doing with faster sequencing, slower, uh, faster block times, you know, two seconds yeah. or less. Um, that can actually mitigate a lot of MEV um, because slower block times means you have uh, less, less loss versus rebalancing, for example, um, and less, less opportunities to reorder transactions because there's fewer transactions to reorder. So I think those are, those are you know, some of the things people can play with in, this, in these toolkits. And one final one that I think you're starting to see, but is, is um, the tech isn't, uh, is still kind of getting more developed, is a little more privacy in the mempool. Um, and, and protocols that allow, you know, the encrypted transactions or, um, or through, you know, the threshold encryption for being able to finalize the set of transactions before you, before, uh, builders or, or proposers are able to see them. Um, and generally being able trying to play with privacy. So, so, uh, trusted execution environments as well. And Flashbots has, has done some research work on this. Things that mean that you don't actually have, the builder doesn't necessarily, or the proposer doesn't have access to the, to all the information about the, uh, about the block before they build it. I think that that's another tool that I think is, is just important for, for avoiding, yeah, some of those informational uh, disadvantages that Ludwig was talking about on the on the pod. Yeah, I think um, it, you know it was interesting to hear. Also, Lud- we we didn't get uh, super into the weeds about about the the guard network in in Angstrom's design, but I thought that was a really a very cool thing, which is basically sort of this sidecar that execution clients can run to basically run their own auction, where it separates top of block MEV opportunities from rest of blocks. That all just happens upstream. Right upstream of where the the, the block auction actually yes. happens. Like, do you do you think that's like you know credits to the team at Sorella Labs for I think coming up with a really innovative design? Do you expect to see sort of more of that where you can almost imagine this like stream of of MEV flowing right in one direction? Maybe some of it originates up here or whatever, but most of it got extracted at the at the block space layer. I feel like you're starting to see there's just sort of more vanilla order flow auctions and then some of these really innovative designs like Angstrom has you know, where, whereby you're redirecting that flow back to LPs or swappers or whoever it is. Like, do you expect to see more, more, more of that? Yeah, I, I love their design um, and this, this general category. It's, it's sort of an interesting middle ground between 
what would you consider like a like a, a whole full L2, right? Which has a, you know with a sequencer, which has which is like reaching this sort of pre-consensus on an entire complex blockchain state um, right. versus something that, you know very relatively simpler like a, like an order flow auction. That's an order by order auction. Um, and this is something that's, you know, this and CowSwap, I think as well, it's something somewhere in between. It's this protocol that has rules. It, it operates on more than one transaction and it, and it has more complex um, validation logic, but, you know, it's not necessarily a full L2. It's really just for coming to consensus on these particular, these, uh, the, say, ordering transactions. And one nice thing there is that unlike an L2, you know, you may not need to prove this really complex state in order to like, you know, uh, uh, interoperate with L1 state or to, or to exit from this, uh, from this quickly and because it's so much simpler you could um you know like these basically do all their execution on chain but you could imagine one that uses that uses ek potentially to um to actually have that be more efficient but it's you know still a lot easier to prove than a full l2 so i think i think playing in that design space where you have these kind of like side chain like um you know lim- some somewhat limited trusted uh, uh separate consensus processes for for things like ordering um or censorship resistance i think it's really powerful yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with you. Um, I, I would be curious because I'm sure you just thought more about the the DEX model than I have. That, but one thing that you know, I, I wish we could have uh, maybe poked at a little bit more with Anna even is just sort of the average, uh, the profile of the average swapper of something like CowSwap as opposed to uh, Uniswap or something like that. My, my my high level understanding of this kind of comes from payment for order flow, where the more the higher percentage of your uh, you know sort of the transactions that are passing through your platform are organic, kind of more derogatory, kind of dumb, dumb transactions. But the more valuable that that ultimately ends up ends up being, you know, I, I'd be curious like, how how do you think about um, the the trade offs? Maybe like even from like a Uniswap perspective of like taking on some of that more uh, toxic order flow, but like having higher overall volumes versus someone like CowSwap who's has very little uh, toxic order flow, and then actually some of their the the liquid like I was going to ask her about this, uh, this deal with balancer where actually balancer gives them better execution prices because, you know, they know they're not going to get run over by the toxic order flow. Like, how do you kind of think about those two different business models, so to speak? Yeah. So I think ultimately the value index is, it's, it's true that it comes from the, from non-toxic order flow. You would expect, you would expect it to, I think it's a little, maybe a little bit subtler than that, but um, so in general, I think you want as much of that as possible. One thing I didn't push back, maybe, maybe I could have on what Anna was saying was for pairs like ETHUSDC, are we going to get, you know, the off, off chain fillers have, have all this inventory. So we, you know, what we might as well fill off chain still like really large trades on CowSwap. They're filling an on-chain inventory generally. Um, I think you still need that on-chain inventory, but there's just so much more of it. And I think it's possible that just being exposed to, to toxic order flow, um, if, if you've got short enough block times, if you've got, you know, the right sort of the right fee level actually isn't as much of a disadvantage um, uh, in, in, if you're still, again, going to ultimately get this like large flow that ultimately like off-chain fillers just aren't willing to take. So I'm not sure if, that, if, that's, if that's as directly answering your question, but I, I actually still think, I think it's really important to have this, this uh, base level passive liquidity on-chain. You know, I've, I've still, still really very much believe this. Like this massive pool of ETHUSDC, I'm not sure it has to be as deep a liquidity pool as, as it is right now. But having it on chain is just really valuable, um, and it just makes DEXs a lot more usable than they would be if you had to depend on um, on off chain liquidity for for um, for large order flow. So I do think it's you know I, I think ultimately my, my point is things like CowSwap, you know, you, they yes they they can try to filter out some of the of the toxic flow, but ultimately they're still going to the same place. There's still ultimately a lot of, a lot of order flow there is getting filled on this on-chain 
from on-chain liquidity. And so I think you're still, it's not like, we're never going to actually get rid of passive liquidity, I think. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. Now, maybe like last closing question for you, because I realized actually after, first of all, if you, if you want, you know, an advertisement for, <laughs> for hooks in the future, you should get Ludwig back on. Cause even talking, I caught up with him for a little bit before this episode and, you know, hearing from him describe the benefits of launching a hook as opposed to his own standalone decks was, you know, definitely made me, made me think pretty heavily, but like, can, can you give us some sort, some sort of insight into I don't know, almost like the ranges of hooks that are being explored today or like what the general interest has been because I'm realizing I'm kind of like, wow, Uniswap like V4 is is coming. Um, it was interesting. To, this is the first time I've really spent time talking to someone who's building on it. It got me honestly feeling pretty excited about it. And I was like, I should probably be paying more attention to this. So, I mean, can you give us any sort of sense of what that ecosystem is looking like today? I have to admit, you know, I was hoping and... You know, we were we were trying to design Uniswap v4 to be something that that a lot of projects could build on, but in the past, um, you know, I think some great projects have built on top of Uniswap. But in general, in the past, whenever um, we've like put out something, you know, Uniswap has put out something and said like, oh, let's let's hope other people build something on top of this. It takes a long time, and you know, you get very limited amount. I think of of stuff actually being built on top of it. The Oracle is one example where it took a while. You know, the V2 launched an Oracle and a year later, the V3 Oracle came out. And I think during that time, like very few projects even made use of the V2 Oracle because it was kind of yeah. hard to, to integrate and you just would have had to go to some trouble to do it. And same with V3. I think it turns out it takes a lot of effort to get people to build on top of your, on top of, of something. And so I was, I wasn't too, you know, I thought, okay, maybe, you know, some people will build this, but we'll see like a couple of projects and, and it'll be, um, you know, it, it's at least, it's going to be an option for people to do, but maybe like, you know, we'll have to like go out and push and find people to build on top of it. But actually, just the response has been tremendous. I think just so many people actually want to build on it. There's been tons of inbound interest. Um, I think I think people, a lot of people who would have built DEXs but felt intimidated, um, as sort of mm. was saying, or Anna was saying about by Uniswap's um, uh, perceived first mover advantage, but have the, had a cool idea for something they wanted to build as a DEX. Um, a lot of people, I think, a big part of it is just the message of feeling okay. Like now, I'm actually I've been invited to basically build this, uh, build to try out my DEX design on this and like rather than feeling like I'm, i have to go compete with this thing i'm actually going to be doing it as a on top of this platform i think it's it's just had a, a you know profoundly different effect i think on on in terms of getting new people to build on top of it from anything else that uniswap's done before and i think it's really cool like it's I, it made me really excited about building it as a platform um and i think the uh yeah i mean i, I think we're going to see some really exciting things i think lever reduction is probably the main um, interesting, you know, the most interesting thing we see built on top of it, but people have come up with new ideas for for oracles um, built on top of hooks. People have come up with um, uh, new designs for for sandwich prevention and these other kinds of other kinds of med prevention that they make make use of really clever um, clever algorithms uh, in there. And and you know people are doing it for using it for other things. I think some of the more out there ideas, you know, you can build like a lending protocol or something on top of it, right? You can try to stretch it even beyond um, uh, uh, just you know what you would think of as a traditional dex. And, you know, I think we'll see which ones really, which ones really work, but I'm, I've just been trying to be encur as encouraging as possible for people who are, who are building on top of it. Cause yeah, I think say, th that same thing literally was saying um, that, you know, it's great to, to sort of be able to build this uh, and, and take advantage of some of those net liquidity network effects and brand advantage. Yeah. All right. Last question for you here. Uh, and this was actually something that you asked uh, Anna Ludwig. Um, when we were talking about the builder searcher market and solver filler, you know, searcher entities being a relatively small number of pretty sophisticated actors, you're like, do you think that this is something that we should fight against or try to prevent? So that's my question to you. 
Do you think that this is something that we should try to prevent and strive against? Or is there just some natural economic forces and we can just kind of let this happen? I think it's important to keep it competitive. I think it's important to re reduce barriers to entry. I think it's important to reduce, um, you know, gains from scale um, and, and, you know, sort of the extent to which there's natural monopolies in the space. I don't necessarily think it's important to, if you've designed a competitive game, um, some people are going to be better at competing at that game. Some entities are going to be better at competing at the game than others, and they will tend to win. Um, I think if that's, if it's still a competitive market, I think that's, that's fine. And ultimately mm -hmm. like that kind of thing you'd expect if, if they were to disappear, someone else comes in and takes their place. If the only way that they're out competing everyone is just by being better at it, by being more competitive. Um, so I, I come down somewhere in the middle of it. Um, I do think there are, there are ways in which that can be, that can be very dangerous. Um, and I think, I, you know, I think we, it's good that there are forces pushing back against that. Um, and in crypto, I think we always want to have forces pushing back against anything that, that, that seems to risk a natural monopoly that could threaten the, um, the censorship or decentralization uh, or, or anything, censorship resistance or decentralization of the, of the space. But ultimately, yeah, to me, it's most important to just design the game to be as competitive as possible rather than trying to, to, to hobble, for example, the ability of a very competitive parties to be able to compete. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. All right, Dan, this is a really fun episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, cross-chain uh, with uh, Hart Lambert, which is going to be a really fun one. So I will okay. see, you, uh, see you next week. See you next week.